want to start with uh, something from a writer and preacher named Frederick Buechner. He says the following, Home, sweet home. There's no place like home. Home is where you hang your hat. Or as a waggish friend of mine once said, home is where you hang yourself. Home is the sailor, home from sea, and the hunter, home from the hill. What the word home brings to mind before anything else, I believe, is a place And in its fullest sense, not just the place where you happen to be living at the time, but a very special place with very special attributes that make it clearly distinguishable from all other places. The word home summons up a place, more specifically, a house within that place, which you have rich and complex feelings about. A place where you feel or did feel once uniquely at home which is to say a place where you feel you belong or that in some sense belongs to you, a place where you feel that all is somehow, some way, ultimately well, even if things aren't going that well at all in the given moment. To think about home eventually leads you to think back to your childhood home, the place where life started, the place that off and on throughout your life you kept going back to, if only in your dreams or memories, and that is apt to determine the kind of place, perhaps a place, inside of yourself that you spend the rest of your life searching for, even if you're not aware of it, that you are searching. I suspect that those who are children, who as children never had such a place in actuality, had instead some kind of dream of such a home, which for them played an equally crucial part. Home. What do you think about home? One thing that gets at this, of course, and I've said this uh, maybe one other time, is home-making shows. These are the shows that take us into a home and show us the myriad of ways that a home has become destitute, broken down, uninhabitable. We, we then see the destruction, demo day, as the home is taken apart or gutted down. The show interrupts and then tells a story of the family who will inhabit the new place, how they will attempt to make this old home a new home, and we catch glimpses of the work. Here is why they are doing this. And at the end of the show, there's the big reveal, that moment when the work of building the new place is done and the couple or the family are brought into the remade home. And there's this like glory, hallelujah moment. The faces of hope are realized. The remade place is now really a home. Now, if you're a viewer of these type of shows, what does that whole experience do to you as you stare at the shambles of your home, your rental, your apartment with roommates, your fixture-upper that you bought? What does it do? Well, it fills you, or fills us, with desire, right? We, We want that. We want that house, that kitchen, that bedroom, that bathroom, that movie room, that backyard, We want the story, we want redemption, we want rescue, we want someone to do all this work for us, like Chip and Joanna coming in and decorating our new place for us. Yes, please let that be true. And this desire is described as, like, this longing is a longing for utopia. Like, right, this this thing where heaven comes to earth, this place for a home where it's peace and security and rest and renovation and remade parcels of land, our own private utopias. These utopian dreams find 
fertile soil, right, in our, our individualistic age, this, this desire for life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, where the only limitation is when your individual rights impinge on mine. So independence and the individual abilities to thrive and survive on my own resources, to get my little place, that's our desire for utopia. The home shows remind us of these desires that we all want utopia. So I start this morning, what is your utopian dream? If we're honest, we want to grow up. We want to make money or get married or raise children or buy a house, have a yard, make a home where we are somewhat free and independent. Some of you want a piece of land that is way away from anyone else so you can experience even more independence, to pursue your individual interests or desires, to not be bugged. Uh, Thomas Kunstler says the following, the idea of a modest dwelling, all our own, isolated from the problems of other people, has been the reigning metaphor of the good life for a long time. Utopia. Or maybe you identify more with Penn Jillette from the group Penn and Teller, the famous magicians. As I'm fond of saying, if you want to find utopia, take a sharp right on money and a sharp left on sex, and it's straight ahead. You see, we all desire utopia, and all of us have some kind of vision for it, and it's built on learned imaginations. Don't miss this. Like, we are formed and shaped by our world. The individualism, independence, and freedom of our worlds form us, shape our imaginations for what that utopia looks like. The writer and philosopher Oscar Wilde says, A map of the world that does not include utopia is not even worth glancing at, for it leaves out the one country at which humanity is always landing. And when humanity lands there, it looks out and seeing a better country sets sail. So progress is the realization of utopias. Wilde here says utopia is the mark of living in an existential world. We have to have a utopia driving us to make the world a better place. Especially if Wilde's view is true, and this world is all we got. But what happens when utopia fails us, when home fails us? What happens when our desires aren't realized, when heaven and earth don't seem to touch? Is the vision of wild adequate enough? Is progress the only answer? What happens when death or divorce or unexpected illness or financial uncertainty hits your home? What happens when home isn't always a place of refuge or a place of rest? where we pine for marriage but remain single, where we want children and birth but we have barrenness. At our tables, too many of us find loneliness instead of company. We see war and famine and brokenness wash up on a beach or street after a flood. Home, as we presently inhabit it, is not the dream we dreamed. And we all suffer from what C.S. Lewis describes as this, a lifelong nostalgia, a longing to be reunited with something in the universe from which we feel cut off, to be on the inside of some door which we have always seen from the outside. What Lewis describes there is there's something about this world that is not home. 
And there's only one plausible explanation for that. Our home has been ransacked. If you've ever been burglarized, that feeling of exasperation and helplessness, of being violated, that place that should be the most safe and secure of all places, now just becomes this open space where you are vulnerable and open to harm. Now, the Christian story of home is that the world was made good, and it was a place where God dwelled together with man. God and man took rest, and creation was home. But we transgressed. We broke house rules. The devil came in and ransacked the place. We preferred self-rule to submission, and God suffered our leave. And the very good world was subject to cosmic vandalism, and now groans with its longing for redemption. Our desire for home, for utopia, for things to be good and right, for freedom and peace to be unrequited presently, despite all the ways we seek to console it. We cannot buy our way home, move to it, renovate our way out. There's this longing, and then there's disappointment. And so Lewis will say we have three choices. We can blame all these things on ourselves. We do this stuff all the time, like on the things, like we can blame the things, we can blame someone else. We do this. We, we buy something and it fails to deliver. We, we buy a new shirt, a new sink, and this is very apropos, right, in the aftermath, the afterglow of Christmas. A new bike, a newer car, and then it breaks, or your two-year-old colors on it with a Sharpie. And Lewis says, the person who goes from woman to woman, continent to continent, hobby to hobby, always thinking that the latest thing is the thing, always finds himself disappointed. When the present home is failing, look for a new one, in other words. The problem is the thing itself. Now, we can do that in the face of this. Or we can go the way of disillusionment. We resign ourselves to fate. It's realism at its finest. And it's what, it is what it is, is our motto. Or the Christian way. Not finding ultimate satisfaction in the world. Not resigning ourselves to trying to make the best of it in a world without meaning or life. But one that rightly appraises desire. The Christian says that creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. And if I find myself with a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable exclamation is, I was made for another world. We start and end this series, we started and now ending this series talking about desire. Our desire for home, for utopia, is a good desire, not because it helps us progress in a dire world or keeps us pining for something in the next, But this desire assures us that if we want home, we shall have it, but not completely in this life. So that brings us to our text. And our text this morning starts with this whole thing, then Herod dies. Like the singing going on in the background of the biblical narrative, ding dong, the witch is dead, the wicked witch is dead, right? Herod has just slaughtered the innocents, and now he dies, This death, by the way, was awful. It resulted in carnage and war in Palestine. But Matthew, interestingly, does not record any of that. And he does not use the death of Herod to even prove God's justice here. He simply records 
Then Herod died without much history other than what follows. Apparently things got worse and better, but he doesn't really get into the details of this. But Matthew reminds us of this, the truth of Psalm 146, 3-4. Put not your trust in princes, nor in a son of man in whom there is no help. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth, and on that very day, his plans perish. You see, Herod dies. But in reality, I think we can see that Herod lives on. Right? As one commentator, he puts it like this, the exaggerated ambitions the pretensions, the self-centeredness, greed for position, grudge against God, guile, and finally, human cruelty and insensitivity, the fruit of our war with God, must be contended with even by Christians until the last judgment. He says this, There are two kings at war in the world and in all of us, Herod and Christ. We know who will win, but meanwhile the battle rages. Herod is here in Scripture partly to serve as a warning to the Christian reader of who or she in no little measure still is. You see, there are two kings at war, Herod and Christ. In other words, the way of Herod versus the way of Christ, maybe. And we are tempted forever and again to trust in princes, to walk the way of princes instead of the way of Christ. And right here at the beginning of our text, Matthew reminds us that the way home is not the way of Herod. You see, Herod dies. His breath departs. His plans perish. So too with us when we walk the way of princes. And so the angel appears in verse 20, Rise, take the child and his mother, go to the land of Israel. And Joseph rose, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But Archelaus was worse than Herod. And so Jer- uh, Joseph was warned again in a dream, don't go there, instead go home to Galilee, to Nazareth. Notice that Matthew addresses Jesus in this text, only once by the name Jesus at the beginning of the chapter. From there, what name dominates? Jesus is called the child. Now, if you've seen uh, The Mandalorian and you've seen Baby Yoda, right? Like, there is this continual refrain of Baby Yoda as the child. And there's this, like, you know, lots of people have made connections to this, like, idea of a birth narrative, the meta-narrative of the birth of Jesus. But he, Jesus, is simply a child, and like Baby Yoda in the story of the Mandalorian, he is acted upon. Here we see that Jesus is too young to act yet. He is instead acted upon. And we see the humanity of Jesus, his fragility in the text, and his sonship to God. Jesus is a sort of fugitive, a most wanted person. And the key facts that emerge about this time of his life, according to Matthew, are geographical. And that's kind of what we've been studying in this series. This has been the route we've examined, the places that shape the story, that make the Jesus of the story. Jesus goes from the promised land in Israel to the classic land of escape, Egypt, just as all the patriarchs did, from Abraham to Joseph. Then, like a second Moses and kind of a second Exodus, Jesus is called up out of Egypt to return to the land of promise again. Out of Egypt I called my son. By means of his geography, Matthew is saying, look, Jesus is the new Israel. 
Jesus goes down to Egypt and is brought back up out again in order to inaugurate a new exodus for the people of God. And so Jesus fulfills the mission of Israel. Jesus is the new Israel. Jesus is the new land of promise. Jesus is, is, the, is, is the light of the nations that Israel was not. Now remember the biblical story was that Israel in the land of promise was to be this place of flourishing on a major roadway between continents where nations would flock because of the law and the land and the way the people lived in the land with the law with God. But Israel fails to be this sort of home. Israel settles for utopia. And so Jesus comes and instead Jesus is the new Israel, the new land of promise. That's the thing that Matthew's doing underneath this text. He is reminding us that first, Jesus is home. Home is where Jesus is. To know Jesus is to have arrived at every heart's true desire. Home. In Jesus, we find home. In Jesus, we find belonging. Jesus is what defined Joseph and Mary's life. Even as Jesus is acted upon by his parents, even as his life is acted upon, upon the dreams that God gives to Joseph to move Jesus to specific places, Joseph and Mary's life revolve around Jesus. Now, when your parents look down at you and gaze at you, kids, and look at you with these longing eyes, they've been doing that for years Every day as a parent has some element of this. Doing something for our children. Because at least in part, where they are is where home is. This is true for Danette and I, and she, uh, both us together, she to me and me to her, but also even more so in some ways with our kids. And what I'm describing here is relationships, right? Relationships make home. Parents, siblings, husband, wife, children, grandparents, even friends and extended family. All of those relationships point and signify towards home, towards a greater reality, that these relationships make up a home. But Jesus is ultimately the one that fulfills all of that. He is the actual place, our true home. Our lives are meant to revolve around him, just like it did for Mary and Joseph. And the question this morning is, does it? Does your life revolve around Jesus? Is Jesus where home is found? As you think about your vision of utopia, whatever your utopia is, is Jesus at the center? I think one thing that's really typical for us as Westerners is that like, Jesus is a spoke on the wheel of something else. Like the center or the hub of the wheel is something else, that Jesus is a part that helps us get there. That's not what he is. Like, life is meant to center on and revolve around Jesus. The the line in Be Thou My Vision, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Oh, how I wander from home, from where Jesus is. Whenever you find yourself wandering in faith or struggling with sin or wrestling with doubt, it isn't because you've necessarily lost your geographical bearings, It's because you've lost sight of Jesus. Frederick Buechner says again, he describes it like this. It was towards the middle of December, I think, that Pastor George said something in a sermon that has always stayed with me. He said that on a previous Sunday, as he was leaving the church to go back to the apartment where he lived, 
He happened to overhear somebody out on the steps asking somebody else, are you going home for Christmas? And I can almost see Pastor George with his glasses glittering in the lectern light as he peered out at all those people listening to him in that large dim sanctuary and asked again, are you going home for Christmas? And he asked it in some sort of way that brought tears to my eyes and made it almost unnecessary for him to move on to answer the question, which was that home finally is the manger in Bethlehem, the place where at midnight even oxen kneel. Home is where Christ is, is what Pastor George said that winter morning. And when the next autumn I found myself, to my great surprise, putting aside whatever career I thought I might have as a writer and going to seminary instead, I don't believe that I consciously thought that home was what I was going there in search of, but I believe that was the truth of it. You see, your and mine utopian searches, your your searches of longing and desire are all part of this search. We are like moths flooding around in search of light, and Christ is the true light, and we are meant to find home in him because where Christ is, is home. Joseph and Mary have learned and are learning this, and so must we. Second, home is where Christ leads us. I know this sounds like stating the obvious, but sometimes the simplest truths are the most difficult to comprehend or accept. When our family first moved back to Albuquerque, Albuquerque wasn't home. Like, we moved here, and even though we spent our childhood here, me and Danette, and some of our kids were here before, we moved here, but we hadn't been here for nine years. And we, we missed our home in Dallas. We missed our friends that we had made there. We missed our community. We missed our church. And so coming here, when we first came here, it, it didn't feel like home, but eventually it became home again. And what we have freshly discovered is that when Jesus is leading, we are never displaced. We are only en route. I used to think that this was, it was enough to say home is where Christ is, but this cheated me of the sweet graces God offers in providentially leading us in this life. It's only half of the story. Jesus doesn't only call us to find home in him, but also in the reality of the places he leads us to. Now hear this, because it's crucial for our congregation. Like many of you, touch down here. And if you're going to be faithfully present, wherever he calls you, It's easy to sometimes move here to the queue and get fixated on using this stop for the next one. The queue just becomes another place you leave. And you think and fantasize while you're here about what's next. The ache of, oh, then I will will be home, fizzing about in your head, making you dizzy with hope and excitement of that next place. But Christ has led you here to be faithfully present here. And that is even more true when you experience the absences of this particular place. So how do you do this? I think the how of this point is related to the last point. Let me explain this through C.S. Lewis. Lewis claimed that if you read history, you will find the Christian who did more for the present world and the present place are those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves who set foot 
on the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the reformers who reformed the church and who were reforming it towards the gospel, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely, Lewis says, because their minds were occupied with new heaven and new earth. You see, the vision of a home, the new city of God overtaking the city of man, is given to us to produce hope. Eternal hope of the biblical kind does not inspire selfish indifference to earthly suffering. Rather, it informs a redemptive vision of the earth where God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. So the new Jerusalem is meant to be our vision of a home lest we become the proverbial child who fails right the the Stanford marshmallow test. The test is the one where one marshmallow is offered now and two marshmallows are offered in 15 minutes. Will the child gobble the present treat or wait for the better reward? And isn't this the dilemma? We, We can pursue home now searching and jumping from home to home, but never finding rest, never being present, using this home to get to the next home, or if the universe is divested of light and meaning, if God is dead and home is is just a fairy tale fiction, then let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. But if eternity does stretch beyond the horizon of life, if there really is a home and a homemaker and a generous invitation to the feast, Let us abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from shame at his coming. And that leads to this last point. Home is where we are headed. Like when Chip and Joanna do the unveiling of the new house amidst all this longing, and when we watch the accounts of flood victims and rescues, like this week I saw a video of a man in his tornado-ravaged house in Kentucky playing the piano. And he sat amidst the damage of his home and played in beauty, beauty in ashes, set amidst the damage. There are these longings, and they signal that one day the sun will rise and end the long night. We live in the present with the hope for the future. Home is where we're headed. Like when Jesus was going home, he spoke with his disciples in the upper room on the night that he was betrayed. And when Jesus said this, he said he was heading home. And actually, this is what we read this morning. Joseph and Mary weren't home, but they were headed home. On a very real level, we are all displaced people because we have come to discover that our true home is in heaven. As Chesterton writes, to an open house in the evening, home shall men come. To an older place than Eden and a taller town than Rome. To the end of the way of the wandering star, to the things that cannot be and that are, to the place where God was homeless, and all men are at home. You see, when we look upon Jesus with faith, faith that his death and resurrection was for us, wanderers get brought home. James Wood is a historian. He recalls in his essay on not going home, the Greek historian Herodotus credited military invulnerability to the Scythians for their effective homelessness. They did not live in settled forts or cities. Rather, they carried their houses with them and shot their bows from horseback. Their dwellings are on wagons. How then can they fail to be invincible and inaccessible to others? Wood concludes, to have a home is to become vulnerable, not just to the attacks of others, 
but to our own adventures and alienation. And adventures and alienation aptly describes the climactic act in the Bible, right? The, what we've been studying through this Advent season in the incarnation of Jesus, God enters into exile to make humanity's homecoming possible. Jesus takes on the status of a poor, wandering child and enters a world full of grief. Remember the world into which Jesus comes, the world of Herod's, his murderous megalomaniac. He was not the king the Jews had been waiting for. He orders the death of his uncle and his mother-in-law, his three sons. He kills his favorite of his ten wives. Caesar Augustus said of Herod, I would rather be Herod's pig than his son. Jesus comes into this particular world of this particular king. And this king quickly orders genocide at the threat and the rumor of the baby king to be born. As the songs of glory to God in the highest are raised, laments come as Rachel weeps for her children and refuses to be comforted because they are no more. You see, Jesus' birth accompanied, is accompanied by cruel, cruelty and death. Joseph is warned by an angel, takes Mary and Jesus, flees by night to Egypt, back to Egypt, the place of God's slavery and his people. Scripture reminds us that the world of Jesus is a world of tyrants, of innocent slaughtered, a world that cannot be home. Because our enfleshed God, he is no stranger to our grief. For this Jesus will suffer in our place. He suffers the greater exile than Egypt can bring at the cross. On the cross, Jesus bears the weight of our homelessness to bring us home. And according to the eyewitnesses and the evidence of an empty tomb, Jesus died and three days later is raised. He leaves behind his grave clothes. He appears to hundreds of his followers. He rose from the dead, inaugurating God's new creation right in the middle of the old. He defeated death. He delivered God's people. His resurrected body is now proof that his church will be brought forward into this new earth. His very body is the first fruits of what will happen to this home, to this home. Jen Might Michelle says, homelessness ends in the new Jerusalem where God keeps place for his people. By the light of the Lamb, home is made luminous, and it is a light to banish gloom and darkness, death and despair. Behold, God says, I am making all things new. You see, we are headed towards that home. Now hear this. Jesus forms his church out of these roots to be the new people of God, the salt, the light, the discipler of all the nations, until his return for the consummation of universal history. Jesus recapitulates in his person and re-inaugurates in his church Israel's mission of salvation for the world. And so that is how the vision of home is meant to animate us as God's people. We are called into this greater story with a greater home and to be active in this temporary place, in this temporary way. We are to be active declaring that Jesus will bring us all home. The fact is this morning that we all in this room come from somewhere. We call that somewhere home. But when we meet Jesus, 
his home becomes our home. And he sets us on a good journey that leads us to where he is. And that, friends, is home. And so this morning, I ask you, are you going home for Christmas? Because home is where Jesus is. Home is where Jesus leads. And home is where you are headed. So be that model home here in Albuquerque. Let's pray together. God, we pray that you would um, help us. Albuquerque is where you have set us now. We are here because you've led us here by circumstance, by calling. And we pray, God, that as we are on this good journey to where you are, that you are here with us and that you call us to be present here in this place, to use our, the ways you've gifted us, to use the calling that you've placed on our life because of the gift of grace, to enact salvation. So we pray that you would help us to do that, to not lose sight of that, even this first Sunday of Christmas, that this is what you've called us to here. And that eventually you will call us home. And so no matter how long we're in this place, in this city, we pray that you would make us, the people of City Press, a faithful presence of your love. We would demonstrate that. And um, we would do that until you lead us to another place where you are. And that in all of that, we will be reminded continually that Home is where you are, that you are our home. Help us to orient our lives around that, we pray. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.